Good afternoon, it's Monday the 30th of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined also by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. Uh, we welcome Katie Jo Murfin back with us, and we're also delighted to have Mark Anderson joining us from the United States. Well, we're going to get kicked off here with uh, Big Brother Watch, and they tweeted this out yesterday. Uh, today, being yesterday, we can expose the hashtag Ministry of Truth. Secretive government units and British Army uh, have been spying on public academics, journalists, human rights campaigners and MPs in the UK under the guise of combating misinformation. Um, so they uh, produced a website, at least the, the URL there, minitruth.co.uk, takes you straight to the page on the Big Brother Watch website. Uh, and uh, well, let's just have a look at the key findings. First of all, Labour leader Sakir Starmer, Conservative MPs David Davis and Chris Green, high profile academics from the University of Oxford and the U University College London and journalists, including Peter Hitchens and Julia Hartley Brewer, all had comments critical of the government analysed by anti-misinformation units. Targeted speech included public criticism of government's pandemic response, particularly lockdown modelling and vaccine passports as well as journalists' criticism of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and MPs' criticism of NATO. Uh, and it goes on to say that soldiers from the Army's 77th Brigade tasked with, quotes, non-lethal psychological warfare, uh, collected tweets from British citizens posting about COVID-19 and passed them on to central government, despite claiming operations were directed strictly overseas. Uh, now they, they have a little section here focusing on the main Groups within the Ministry of Truth, as they describe it, the Counter Disinformation Unit at the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, the Rapid Response Unit at the Cabinet Office, uh, the Research Intelligence and Communications Unit at the Home Office, and the Government Information Cell at the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. And I'm just going to say a, a very well done to the Big Brother Watch for, for doing this. It's getting some traction this morning. Um, but it was us, the UK column, which has absolutely exposed this over the last three or four years. Um, if we look at this uh, page on the UK column website, Censored, uh, we published this in 2019, uh, and we were talking about uh, Theresa May establishing the rapid response unit within the cabinet office, uh, talking about what it was doing, um, also known as the fake news unit, uh, headed up by a guy called Alex Itkin, and so on. We published a couple of articles, and published a series of articles, but I'll choose two to uh, highlight here, the British Ministry Information War, waged on their own population, published in 2020, uh, and Beyond Integrity Initiative, the scale of UK Gov uh, counter disinformation, published in 2019. Strongly recommend everybody reads those. And of course, we've been showing this graphic multiple times on the UK column news over the years, uh, showing the censorship network as, as we describe it, uh, including the Rapid Response Unit, the National Security Communications Team, 77th Brigade, 13 Signals, Department of Culture, Media and Sport Fake News Unit, the Freedom of Information House, uh, sorry, the Freedom of Information Clearing House. Uh, these are all run in, in parallel with the various intelligence agencies through the National Security Council and the Cabinet Office. And just uh, very briefly on the FOI Clearing House, of course, if people are having uh, trouble getting uh, Freedom of Information requests answered uh, on the basis of maybe them being a, a journalist or an activist of some kind, it's probably because uh, the government agencies have been told to, to funnel all those types of uh, freedom of information requests through that uh, FCDO department. 
uh, for them to, or, or cabinet office department rather, for them to, uh, uh, to, to vet first and for them to make a decision on how uh, those are responded to. So David, uh, uh, I'm just gonna ask for your thoughts on this because you know, well done to Big Brother Watch uh, for, uh, for doing this, um, but we were there first. Well, we've been talking about this for some years, and it, and it has been uh, the, the others as well. I've been talking about this for some years because back in twenty twenty, General Sir Nick Carter said that the seventy seventh Brigade was combating um, quote what they termed misinformation, and what we now know is correct information that was devastating to the government's case um, online about COVID nineteen. What that has to do with the military at the time, we were wondering. And indeed, it was quite, quite clearly not, as the MOD had stated, only dealing with external threats, destabilising the country. It was dealing with internal dissension. And it was, it was clearly doing that. And of course, there were thousands of people involved. I think the numbers are something like 2,000 on, on the regular staff, but they could call on up to 20-odd thousand um, for a surge online when necessary. This is information provided by General Sir Nick Carter. Um, and again, this is back in 2020. So the the information has been out there and the, the basic principle that we are going to protect the government's narrative online using the United Kingdom military to do so, um, with all the implications of that for freedom, for free speech, for having a, a, a country where you can actually feel safe if you want, if you wish to dissent from the government's line, um, were ignored by the mainstream, um, but have been reported by us and others. Um, and we should not forget that uh, 77, one of those 77 uh, brigade reservists, at least, uh, Tobias Elwood, is still a serving MP. Now we've got to we've got to try to work out how it's possible, how there's no conflict of interest there. But anyway, nonetheless, I'm not quite sure how you well, represent a constituency while at the same time you may be spying on them. Uh, uh, absolutely. I, I just want to add to that that having served in the military, particularly during the Cold War period, what what this is is a creation of the Soviet. We, this is the Soviet system. This is how it worked with the government spying on citizens. This is so offensive to me, and I'm sure it is to many other um, both serving and retired military people. So we've got to stay on the case. Um, so in the meantime, of course, uh, all this is being done with the full support of the uh, mainstream press, uh, who have continued to attack uh, many of the types of people that uh, this infrastructure is there to spy upon. Uh, and so let's have a look at this Times article here from uh, January the 21st. Uh, Hope Sussex School trains next generation of conspiracy theorists. I'm just going to pull a few quotes out of this before we ask Katie Joe for some comment. Um, but it says a group of anti-vaccine activists uh, and former members of the far right are running a school in inverted commas uh, where children are being prepared uh, to become the next generation of conspiracy theorists. The leaders of Hope Sussex are encouraging parents to remove their children from mainstream state education and send them to a school that Ofsted suspects is illegal brackets not registered, uh, while claiming to uh, local authorities that the children are being home educated. Ofsted is understood to be investigating Hope Sussex, which it has reasonable grounds to suspect of running an illegal school defined as a setting that is operating in an independent school but is not registered 
with the Department for Education. Uh, Hope Sussex was founded last year by Sadie Single, 44, and her husband Matthew, 51, both former members of the British National Party, says the Times, uh, who were expelled in 2009 for leaking the names and details of thousands of party members online after an internal dispute. Before joining the BNP, Sadie had lived in Australia where she was linked, not doesn't say how she was linked, to a neo-Nazi group, uh, according to Hope Not Hate. Uh, it goes on to say uh, she taught as a teacher for nine years but was understood to have left her job uh, in 2021 because of her anti-vaccine activities. The couple set up the school with Katie Jo Murphy, uh, 41, a dance instructor and mother of three who has described COVID-19 as a pandemic. So uh, Katie Jo, uh, that I believe is the second attack uh, from the Times in the last uh, two or three weeks on Hope Sussex or at least uh, the, the, uh, the previous article uh, discussed Hope Sussex in the in the text of the article, but wasn't headlining. But you got you got a headline this time. We got a headline this time. Um, yes, we've been featured in Vice twice, the Daily Mail, um, a local paper, and we've had we've had the Daily Mail. Um, they've been in contact with us again um, and said they're going to run another article. Um, yes, uh, it's it's full of lies and fabrication. Uh, really, the article it's 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 ridiculous. Uh, there's so much content in there. I don't really know where to start, but I'll start with the fact that they're calling us an unregistered school. Um, that's total nonsense. Um, you've probably heard me time and time again say that we are not a school. We don't run anything like a school. Um, we we know exactly how we can and can't work within the system. Uh, we did have a visit from Ofsted a year ago. Um, two Ronnies came down the drive with their body cams on and told us that they suspected we were running an illegal school, um, that they would like to come on with their body cams and film who was there, what, you know, how many children we had. They'd been watching children enter and, and leave. And um, we just basically calmly and very politely said to them, you are not coming on this site. It's private property and you are you're not you don't have any right to come on, basically. So. Um, so, yeah, we, we are not under investigation at all. We haven't had any correspondence with them since that event. And they know that they don't have any right, basically, because we don't we are not a school. We run as a community centre. We hire our venue out to independent tutors and then home educating families and individuals book on through the tutor. And that's it. That's exactly how we operate. No children are on site on their own. They are always accompanied by a guardian because the whole point of home education is that you are actively involved with that community and with your child's education. So it isn't a drop-off uh, facility. And, yeah, we run nothing like a school. So that's complete uh, fallacy and lies. Um, they came down uh, the Thursday before the article came out. They sent a reporter to uh, Nedfield and we were shut that day. We didn't have anything going on. So they went up to the local shop to try and get some dirt on us. Uh, but what they didn't know is that we have a really good relationship with the people in the shop. Um, we invite them to everything we do. They actually stock the light newspaper for us. And um, yeah, they tried to you know, ask them questions like, oh, do they involve the local community? And uh, what do the local, I mean, we do, there are some local people that aren't too happy with us. We did make a lot of noise at the festival. We actively went round and knocked on doors to apologize. Um, we want to work with the local community. We don't want to become you know, a nuisance, but most of the time you, you don't know we're there. 
so uh, so they so they so she she just said glowing things about us, but obviously none of that made the uh, made the article. Um, uh, with regard, oh sorry, go on. No, I was just <laughs> so going to ask. Uh, I mean, uh, with with uh, you've had quite a number of these attacks. Uh, has has that resulted in uh, positive communications from the public, or has that resulted in uh, aggressive communications from the public? Well, I suppose the thing is, is anybody who's going to believe anything that's printed in the paper or that is coming to them through the screen of, you know, from the mainstream media, if they're believing that, then they're not our, our sort of people anyway. Um, we've had so much support from our community, loads of emails, texts saying, you know, I, I go with my heart, I go with my instinct, I do not follow what's printed. So, and we've even had anonymous emails as well. Uh, people know who we are. People know what we're all about. We've had, we have a child safeguarding policy in place. We have two designated safeguarding uh, uh, persons on site. We take that really, really seriously. Um, and we, basically, the school's bill has been kicked out and they're trying every single tool they have. And their biggest tool is the mainstream media. And yeah. so they're going to paint us in this terrible, terrible light to try and win people around to say, oh, this is, you know, we definitely need this register. You know, there's there's these terrible conspiracy uh, academies out there. That's absolute nonsense. We do not teach the children conspiracy theories. We teach them critical thinking. We give them lots of different schools of thought and theories, and then we allow the children to make their own minds up. It, that's exactly what is not happening on our television screens and in our newspapers. Or in, um, our, it's one or in our mainstream schools. Or in our mainstream schools, exactly. It's always one. Take the theory of, 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 of life and, and the, you know, the existence of planet Earth and the solar system. How many theories are there? Tons of theories. But it's always the Big Bang theory that is pushed in schools and mainstream. It's, it, you know, and we don't do that at Hope. We look at all different schools of thought. And in the class, we have different children that come up with different, you know, some children do believe that the Big Bang, Bang theory is actually how the universe was created. Some believe, uh, you know, are more religious, some are more spiritual, but that's good. There's debate. We talk about it. You know, this, yeah. this, this is how we should be existing. This doesn't happen in mainstream schools yeah. anymore. It's crazy. Katie Joe, I just, uh, my comment is you mentioned Ofsted and my mind goes right back to the abuse of young teenagers in Oxford uh, Cherwell Valley School, where of course, when Ofsted was informed, they did nothing. They did nothing, no, nothing. but uh, in your case, inspectors can arrive on the door very quickly. So, yeah, it's a biased system without question. Yeah, totally biased. Ofsted do not care one ounce about your child. I will tell you that now. They do not care about your child and your child's well-being. All they care about is numbers, statistics. Yeah. They, you know, that's it. They don't care. So why would why would anybody want to operate? in that system and want their children to be brought up in that system. I have no idea. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that. Now let's uh, move on then to health. And uh, well, the NHS has decided to uh, announce uh, a new emergency care plan. Uh, so the NHS and the government today are publishing a new blueprint, is how they describe it, to help recover urgent and emergency care services, uh, reduce wait times and improve patient experience. It's fantastic. So uh, frontline capacity is going to be boosted thanks to 800 new ambulances. Uh, now, somebody uh, on Twitter, some wag said, well, uh, ambulances without staff, uh, without uh, paramedics are just vans. Uh, so uh, it, but 800 new vans there, including 100 specialist mental health vehicles, 
5,000 more sustainable hospital beds uh, backed by one billion pound dedicated fund. But unfortunately, that one billion pounds is being taken from the NHS budget. So it's not new money. It's just money that's been pushed aside into this. Uh, they're saying that uh, some of these services are going to, sorry, they're saying that urgent care provided in the community will be expanded to ensure people can get the care they need at home without the need for hospital admission. And that those services are going to run for 12 hours a day, responding to calls normally requiring an ambulance crew. Uh, so if you've fallen, for example, uh, you better do it uh, between the, the hours of 9 and uh, 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. because other than that, uh, you're not going to get uh, home, help at home and so on. So, but this is, this is a, a nonsense uh, uh, yeah. PR stunt. Well, I passed a, a van, I think it was an ambulance this morning, and I'm pretty sure the sign on the side said, the NHS is not a 99999 call. And I found that very interesting. So, you know, forget about somebody lying there in a pool of blood and you're going to dial 999 and get the NHS. No, because their their own signs are saying that's not the thing to do. You've got to phone uh, treble one and an ambulance will turn up, maybe. Yes. Now, uh, tomorrow is uh, the third anniversary of Brexit. Uh, so everybody should be very excited about that. Uh, but what has the impact been? Well, there's lots of debate going on about what the impact has been. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight one uh, impact or one uh, thing which has been enabled by it, and that, that's this. Uh, this is the Intercontinental Exchange, uh, known as ICE. Uh, and this owns uh, an exchange called TTF, which handles ga gas, spot and prices and futures markets. In it's based in Amsterdam. Uh, and they've decided that they are going to open a parallel uh, exchange in London, uh, and this can only happen because of Brexit. Um, so th this is happening. It's the market is going to open on the twentieth of February, uh, in a few weeks' time. Uh, and th but they did say that they're going to continue to operate the TTF market on its Amsterdam exchange as well. So the question is, why are they doing it? Well, of course they're doing it because uh, it announced back in December, the EU decided to uh, limit gas prices. Uh, if we just have a look at this, uh, so they put a price cap on on gas. Uh, and they said that the level, uh, this article here from CNBC says that the level at which the cap is triggered was lowered to 180 euros per megawatt hour after an initial proposal of 275 euros per megawatt hour was criticized as far too high by countries including Poland, Spain and Greece. The 180 euro limit must be surpassed for three working days uh, on the TTF uh, and it must be 35 uh, euros per megawatt above the global reference price for liquefied natural gas over the same period. Um, so the point here is, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, David, the point here is that uh, even at 180 euros per megawatt, per megawatt hour, the cap is extremely high. Uh, uh, for example, at the moment, uh, the price is 70 euros or so per megawatt hour. So it has to go massively higher to reach that cap. Nonetheless, uh, ICE is investing in uh, setting up this uh, infrastructure, this exchange in London, which means that must mean, or I presume it means, that they certainly see that price cap as being uh, a, a definite possibility in the coming year or so, or a couple of years. Uh, and they're setting this up so that some companies can avoid the EU price cap. Well, I guess so. I mean, the thing with price caps is they, they, they don't work um, at all as intended. Right, so anyone who's introducing this is 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 an economic buffoon. See EU, 
right? So if you if you set the cap at a level so far above the market clearing price, it has no effect. Okay, fine, no one bothers. And if you set it so that it comes into effect, then you're holding the price down below the market clearing price, and what you get is shortages. In gas terms, you would get uh, power cuts, blackouts, that sort of thing. Uh, not good effects, not, not good uh, outcomes. So understand someone wanting to prepare to get around that, but it is a very high price. 275 was a vastly high price. Um, do they see something coming? Well, maybe so, because there's still, there's still the prospect of, uh, of further disruption of any supplies from the East, and the uh, much more expensive shipborne supplies, replacing them may not have uh, the volume that is necessary. Indeed. Um, okay, well, let's uh, stick with economic news and move on to Japan. Okay, yes, yeah, so we've got um, many, many things from Japan. We covered Japan uh, about two weeks ago, and we were looking at the problems that we're having in the bond markets. This is a follow-up from that. Um, we see more problems coming out. Um, we've got, uh, here we've got the Japan Times uh, saying that Japan has now got a record trade deficit. So that, uh, Japan's got a, the biggest uh, public debt in the world, 240% uh, of GDP or something like this, um, by a country mile. But some things have always been, it's different for Japan because, and one of the things was it always ran a positive trade surplus. Well, not anymore. Record trade deficit, 19.97 trillion yen in 2022. Um, and... Um, this is obviously removing one of the things that was stabilizing the country. Um, the, uh, I, they also have a problem with the falling birth rate. I um, don't know if we've got a slide for this one, but the, um, uh, sorry, just before we get on to interest rates, I think one slide was missed out. So there's, there's an issue with the falling birth rate. So Kishida, the prime minister, warned that Japan's on the brink of social dysfunction due to its falling birth rate. The birth rate's 1.3 uh, children per, per woman, per adult woman. Uh, 2.1's the replacement rate. Uh, so this declining birth rate uh, has, has has caused a, sh a shrinking population, an aging population. Uh, so the, the Prime Minister's calling on policies aimed at facilitating child rearing, quote, the most cost-effective investment in the future, end quote. Uh, he, he vowed to create a... a children first economy and society. So they are having to address a plummeting birth rate that they say, well, it's hampering long-term productivity growth, but it's hampering more than that. It's destabilizing the entire society. Um, one of the other things that Japan's always been known for, despite all the borrowing and spending is low inflation. Well, that might be ending too. Japan's core inflation hits a 41 year high. Now it's still only 4%. So by British, American, European, uh, let alone South American and African standards, it's very, very low, but it's still a 41 year high. So that's running up. Um, and we have here the finance minister. He's warning uh, that this, this, the finance situation in Japan is dire. Uh, as the Bank of Japan struggles to contain uh, yields on uh, uh, Japan government bonds. Uh, so he's saying that uh, the finances are becoming increasingly precarious. His name's uh, uh, Suzuki. He warned on Monday um, that uh, the markets are testing the central bank to see if they can keep interest rates ultra low because this is allowing the government to service its debt. So this is one of the issues here. 
with a 240% of GDP debt level, if the government started to have to pay significant interest on that debt, it would soak up a vast amount of taxation revenue, which wouldn't be available for anything else. He continues, Japan's public finances have increased in severity to an unprecedented degree as we have uh, compiled supplementary budgets to respond to coronavirus and similar issues. I think similar issues means preparation for war with, with uh, China and uh, responding to the war in Ukraine. Uh, Suzuka said in a policy session in Parliament, um, public finance is a cornerstone of the country's trust, he said. Interesting statement. We must secure fiscal space under normal circumstances to safeguard Japan to safeguard trust in Japan and people's livelihoods in time of emergency. So he's obviously anticipating an emergency and he's saying the situation's very grim. But it then gets even more kind of bizarre because um, Prime Minister uh, Kishida uh, echoed uh, Suzuki's uh, resolve to revive the economy and tackle fiscal reform. He stressed the need for a positive cycle of growth led by corporate profits and private consumption. So this is Keynesianism. This is Keynesianism on steroids, which is Japan policy uh, through and through, that, um, that what we have to do is stimulate demand to save the economy. Um, he said, quote, wage hikes hold the key to a virtuous cycle. Um, and he vowed to push labour reform to create a structure that allows sustainable wage growth to overcome the pain of rising living costs. First of all, he said, we need to realise wage growth that exceeds price increases, he's, um, he added pledging to also boost childcare support and push investment in uh, areas such as green digital transformation. So he's, he's, he's touching on all of the normal things, the green economy and all the rest of it. But unlike Britain, where the Bank of England's worried about um, uh, wages pushing inflation, wage push inflation, uh, the Japanese government ministers are actually trying to encourage and negotiate higher wage claims because that will generate inflation and that will save the economy. Such is the belief in the Keynesian worldview of aggregates. And it's all about total spending and there's nothing else to see here. And if we just spend enough money, everything will be fine. So this is reckless. Um, on the subject of reckless, um, we've got this Financial Times here reporting um, that the Bank of Japan is easing the bond market with loans to the commercial banks. So unlike before, where they were loaning commercial banks 10%, uh, for 10 years at 0% interest rates, it's now um, variable rate. Now, it's a variable rate at 0.0145%. So it's almost free money, but it is variable. And they're, they're lending money, they're printing money out of nothing. They're lending it to the banks, the commercial banks, and the commercial banks it is expected will buy uh, Japan government bonds, thereby stabilizing the bond market and allowing the Japanese government to go on financing itself. Of course, if the bond price goes down, the interest rate goes up, those banks will end up paying more in their variable rate loan than they will get in uh, as a fixed rate coupon on the bonds they've bought and all of the banking system will be in crisis immediately as a result. But this is fine. The, the commercial banks love this. The, the, whole, the whole idea was oversubscribed three times. They were queuing up to borrow money from the central bank at 0.145%. They couldn't wait. So we'll see how that will go. Now, I've been through all of these 
areas that show the strain is going. We've got a shrinking population, falling birth rate, a record um, balance of trades deficit, 41-year high in inflation, desperate government finances, loans to commercial banks to shore up the government finances. So I was surprised to read the Japan Times. Japan's greatest export today is stability. As nations navigate chaotic global affairs, Japan stands out for its economic and social stability. As a reliable trading partner with a steady political system, its value as a dependable player will increase as fragmentation intensifies. Japan's wonderful. I thought, what planet are these people on? And then I got to the end of the article and I found out the article is part of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, Davos 2023. So this shows not only how bad Japan is, but how utterly disconnected from reality Davos has become. They're yeah. no longer talking about real things. They're talking about the world as they wish it to be, not, a, not the world as it actually is. Yeah, indeed. Okay, thank you, David. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumns.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything that you find on the various platforms. Um, and David, just a couple of shout outs for some content on the website. Yes, uh, we've got um, uh, an article here, an interview uh, with John William Noble that I did on that, what state education is all about and his uh, fight to create an actual school. Um, so this uh, is obviously of great interest, not least of which to everyone at Hope Sussex who uh, are actually doing home education and are looking for um, peace to do that. Um, here we see someone who's actually gone through the process of setting up a school formally, gone through all the, the, the hurdles and the hoops, um, and it, it's his story, not only as to how that's going, but why, why he felt that uh, state education was so toxic that he could not in all good conscience allow his children and other children in his church and uh, community to have to endure it. Yep. And uh, secondly, we have here... Um, uh, uh, Ravi Farber, um, the coming dollar collapse and the role of gold and silver. Uh, a very entertaining interview with, with Ravi here, talking about all things uh, precious metal and central bank and uh, the nature of the world economy and why uh, it's uh, basically a bug looking for a windshield. And finally? And uh, <laughs> finally, um, uh, I just want to remind people of a short speech by me called Ugly Building, Ugly Ideas and Ugly from Ugly Sources, all about what's coming out of Holyrood. That's relevant, as we'll see later in the news. OK, thank you, David. Uh, well, probably the ugly building is, is more relevant, we might think, because we're going to see some horror stories in buildings fairly shortly. But let's have a little bit of a, an update of Matters Military in Ukraine. Uh, what's the hot topic? Well, all of a sudden, um, we've apparently discovered that the British Army is in a dire state. Um, this has come out from comments from the Americans. Uh, the Americans have basically said uh, British military are now second rate and incapable of, of being effective on the modern battlefield. Now, with no disrespect to people serving in the military, uh, many of whom I know do it out of a uh, correct sense of uh, loyalty and love of their country. The reality is they have been betrayed 
by government since uh, the end of the Cold War, uh, ever since Ben Bradshaw was on the BBC talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall and that was the end of that system, uh, the cuts uh, came in with a vengeance. And we've now worked out that uh, the truth is that we can't put an army into the field. We're lucky if we could get 20,000 men into the field. We'd be lucky if we've actually got 20,000 men within that uh, military unit to get on the field. Uh, so the Express uh, headline was interesting because if we uh, pop that one back on screen, of course, who was the, uh, who was the man here? Uh, well, it was Tobias Elwood. Uh, he's uh, getting stuck into Ben Wallace. Uh, because, of course, Tobias Elwood, if he's not part of 77 Brigade spying on the public, he knows everything about defence and he's warned and warned that we should already be at war with the Russians. In fact, if we'd gone to war earlier, there wouldn't be a problem now. That's more or less what this man says. Uh, so interesting to see that as we tell the Ukrainians, trust us to train your troops and beat the Russians, the reality is that, of course, Britain's military is in a despicable state. Uh, we don't have the men, we don't have the weapons, we don't have the resupply, we haven't got the ammunition to fight a proper war. All of this is coming to the surface. Um, so let's just have a look at this little video clip of uh, Ben Wallace under pressure. This was a little while ago, but of course, uh, this is nothing new. Uh, it's simply the case that the government has turned a blind eye to the real state of Britain's military. Does that give out to the rest of the world? Well, I, I think we don't get a mention. To be fair, you could, you could ask the United States that. I mean, for me, I don't feel any lesser because of how many times I mentioned any report or the UK is. Think, the, or the UK is. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about NATO, we're one of the biggest contributors. So when you talk about NATO, it is important. Um, AUKUS, you know, is a very clear strategic partnership that is not available to many other countries. So I don't... I suppose uh, I don't worry about it because I've had an experience over the last three and a bit years with the United States on both sides of the aisle, effectively, that has demonstrated only one thing, which is a constant trust and partnership with us at a level that I don't see in other countries around the world. The US finally, the US have mentioned um, two things, haven't they, that they were not happy with. One, the cutting of the army by 10,000, which, as you well know, I have campaigned against, and I mentioned it again today. Um, and that's, the, that's sort of one of their bugbears. And I'm also wondering that the 3% that logically we should be spending on defence in an increasingly unstable world, I wonder if we don't do that, whether the US will comment further that they're concerned about their greatest buddies not investing in something they think we should, and we think we should. Well, I certainly think the US would always want to see us at the front of the pack or in the top, you know. The top few teams in the Premiership is what they would expect. So, David, just very quickly, I have to comment on that dialogue because, of course, the reality that they're talking about is not just 10,000 men in the army. It was to do with problems across the board. The Navy can't get ships to sea. The aircraft carriers don't work. Uh, we haven't got enough planes. But it's all discussed in this sort of bumbling um, understatement of the old boys club and who's going to be the top team. I find the dialogue and the manner in which they have it despicable as the country's betrayed. Uh, talking about some Englishmen there, so over to you. Well, uh, Brian, you've, you've spent a lot of time in the Navy. Um, 
you haven't had my level of experience of incompetent management. And um, one of the signs of really weak management is football metaphors. Um, so when when people start saying, "Well, we're a Premier League club," or this is this this is this is signs that they're no longer thinking clearly about anything. Like they're no longer able to think clearly. They're no longer addressing the real issues. They're falling back onto lazy, um, lazy comparisons that, that really have no substance. And this is what we're seeing from Ben Wallace. We've got the ambition to be um, be a world player of in in terms of power broking, in terms of the great game in terms of international conflict, in terms of regime change in large and, and powerful countries, the ambition to do all of this without any of the means. So he's just he's just hiding from the reality. Um, this this level of, of of absence of careful thought and, and actually honesty, he has to he has to stand ultimately on 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 principles of honesty, because if if their if our armed forces ever have to go into the field in a condition where they are thoroughly inadequate, many lives will be lost, and Ben Wallace and others in control and in power now will be responsible. It takes a long time to build up the ability within within a military, and it doesn't take very long to wreck it. Thank you very much for that, David. I heartily agree with that. They're not in the real world. They're bumbling around. Let's take people into the real world. And I was amused to see this in the sun over the weekend. So here's the headline, shock and roll. Army hammering out emergency plan to keep Putin's hands off top secret British armour if tanks are damaged in Ukraine. So we've got the bizarre situation where Ben Wallace is going to put in um, the best that the British Army's got, and we're already worrying uh, that these uh, tanks could be captured. But how does all this work? Um, we're going to defeat Russia with Challenger tanks, 14 of them, um, but the Army's already worried that its world-beating tank will be damaged and or fall into Russian hands as Ukraine wins the war. This is complete fantasy land. And let's just remind people with this little clip, this is of a leopard uh, being destroyed with a Soviet weapon in Syria. And the uh, reality is that these uh, Russian weapons are extremely good. And this is what faces both Challenger and Leopard and the Abrahams tanks. But of course, we don't want to talk about the reality. Uh, this is a tragic uh, little video clip. I'm playing it without sound, but this is another Ukrainian family man being dragged off to war. And the reality, despite the silence by uh, the British government and the BBC and the Ministry of Defence, is that uh, he will almost certainly be killed with massive losses amongst the Ukrainians, well over 150,000 men killed and well over 500,000 injured. But we don't talk about casualties. Uh, we've simply got to keep pump pumping in the weapons. And of course, for the Ukrainians, they're going to keep pumping in the men as the uh, cannon fodder. Now, Mike is going to uh, shortly be talking about this uh, gentleman, Admiral Rob Bauer from the Netherlands, uh, was intrigued to see on his uh, Twitter page uh, that he's getting very excited because uh, we're welcoming um, Ukrainian cadets. So we've got 155 
or more Ukrainian dead and the half a million wounded. And we've got a, uh, a Dutch admiral here uh, clearly happy. I've said grooming U Ukrainian children for death. And that's exactly what this man is, is up to. So more despicable stuff here within NATO. Let's have a look at some of the reality on the ground. Uh, one of the key areas um, in uh, eastern Ukraine is around this uh, major town of Bakhmut. This has been heavily fortified over many years. And the Russians are playing a very clever game because there are no massive frontal assaults with men. They are simply standing off and killing Ukrainian with long range weapons. But the red to the right of the picture shows the Russian advance, which is now breaking through the whole of this uh, line, Bakhmut and the fortified towns and villages which run in a line north to Seversk. And uh, once the uh, Russians are through this, although there is another layer of defense further to the east, those defenses get uh, successively weaker. So if you imagine the lava flow from a volcano, that is the way the Russian forces are approaching this to minimize Russian ca casualties whilst they maximize U Ukrainian casualties. And if I bring this one on screen, and I'm going to thank military advisor because this is another of the social media reporters that are doing the work that the BBC can't or won't do, for example. Uh, but we've got um, another um, uh, defended town um, uh, up to the top right hand corner. This is southwest of Donetsk, about 80 kilometers to the southwest of defense. So we've got a, a highly heavily fortified uh, Ukrainian town. That says number one. And number two is an area southwest of Voludar there, which is also uh, heavily defended as a strong point. And this is just a little bit of film to show what's happening on the battlefield in this, this area. So we're playing this out without sound, uh, but you can see the reality of high-rise buildings, which of course dominate, allow observation of the surrounding uh, countryside. So the Russians are simply not putting men forward. They're standing off and uh, shelling the Ukrainian positions to pieces. And they will do this until they believe the defenses are significantly weakened and then they will advance. So that's the reality of the war in Ukraine, which uh, the uh, British Ministry of Defense would have us believe is at a stalemate. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is the defended area to the south of Vlidar, which we've just shown on screen. And uh, this is showing Grad missiles uh, destroying this area, which is um, fortified as a separate position by the Ukrainians. So this is his absolutely vile loss of life, uh, but the uh, Russians minimizing their own casualties whilst they're destroying the Ukrainians. And if we want to talk about sophistication, this is the Russians taking out a Ukrainian S-300 uh, battery. Uh, let's just bring the video clip on screen. Watch the top right hand corner of the screen where you'll see the initial impact. But I think people will be shocked as to what unfolds uh, following this explosion once we zoom in and get a bit of a close up. Note the uh, open range countryside where of course movement of troops can be spotted very easily from drones. So the Russians not falling into the trap of uh, exposing their own troops. They are working forward to destroy the Ukrainians before they move forward. 
And the other thing happening, of course, on a regular basis is destruction of Western supplied equipment. Here's M777 howitzer, and this is what happens to this equipment once the Russians find it on the battlefield, as they're doing on a regular basis. Uh, so the destruction of this uh, gun happens pretty quickly um, with a remote drone. And uh, if we look at another uh, built-up area here, um, this is uh, showing what happens when Russian heavy weapons are unleashed. And uh, you can see the size of these explosions, but also, again, see the dev devastation on screen. I think we'll stop that little video there because it just becomes worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And of course, men are dying in their thousands as those explosions take place. Um, so, Mike, I'll just bring Admiral Rob Bauer back on screen here. Um, we've got uh, him honoured to meet the Ukraine, Ukrainian military representative to our session on Ukraine. He provided an update on the ongoing war, military progress and international support. And this bit caught my eye. Um, NATO praised the Ukrainian military leadership who outmaneuver their opponent time and time again. The truth is the opposite. The uh, Russians are outmaneuvering the Ukrainians and simply killing them where they stand. So I just find these reports are very difficult to believe now, but uh, the Dutch Admiral there is part of the NATO propaganda machine. Meanwhile, let's hear what Zelensky uh, has in store for Ukraine. It is obvious that American business can become the locomotive that will once again push forward global economic growth. We have already managed to attract attention and have cooperation with such giants of the international financial and investment world as BlackRock, JP Morgan and Golden Sachs, such American brands as Starling or Westinghouse have already become part of our Ukrainian way. Your brilliant defense systems such as HIMARS or Bradley's are already uniting our history of freedom with your enterprises. We are waiting for patriots. We are looking closely at Abrams. Thousands of such examples are possible and everyone can become a big business by working with Ukraine in all sectors from weapons and defense to construction, from communication to agriculture, from transport to IT, from banks to medicine. And I believe that freedom must always win. Well, Mike, we should get in there because Absolutely. everybody is welcome in Ukraine. So there's the reality, of course, uh, US big business and British, of course, and the military industrial complex straight in there, plus the international banking cartels to own Ukraine. So this man, a complete traitor to his own people. He's given the country away, but he's got more Ukrainians to kill before the fighting is over. No, it's one thing sending tanks, including leopard tanks uh, to Ukraine, but of course, somehow you've got to get ammunition for those tanks. And so uh, NATO and so on have been going cap in hand to just about every country in the world that has them uh, to try and get that ammunition. One country, one such country is Brazil. Uh, but Brazil has decided, uh, as we can see here, uh, that they are not going to supply ammunition for German tanks 
so the article here from Interfax Ukraine says Brazil has rejected sending tanks, tank ammunition to Germany over concern that these shells would be handed over to Ukraine. Uh, and uh, so what can we say? Not going too well there. Uh, also announced last week, if we're sticking with South America, that Colombia has also uh, refused to donate weaponry, this time uh, Russian weaponry. Uh, this was for Russian helicopters that uh, Colombia flies. Uh, they don't want to send those to Ukraine either uh, because uh, they don't want them to uh, turn into scrap metal, is what they're saying. Uh, and let's put uh, this from Facebook. Uh, this is Oleg uh, Nikolenko uh, on Facebook. We'll just do a quick translation of this. He says, uh, media, during a conversation with journalists, the Prime Minister of Hungary compared Ukraine to Afghanistan uh, and called it a no man's land. Other disparaging, another disparaging statement by Viktor Orban against Ukraine. Such statements are categorically unacceptable. Budapest continues its course to deliberately destroy Hungarian-Ukrainian relations, significantly undermining the possibility of further dialogue between the two neighboring countries. The Hungarian ambassador will be summoned to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Ukraine for a frank conversation. We reserve the right to take other response measures. Now, we were talking about Hungary and so on last week, but uh, what was uh, Orban actually saying here? He was saying that really, instead of arming Ukraine, the West should be seeking a ceasefire and peace talks. Uh, he said he did not believe in Ukraine's victory and the Ukraine is gradually turning into an uncontrollable ruin. So um, I, th I think uh, his comments quite appropriate, particularly bearing in mind what we were talking about on uh, Wednesday's program last week. Uh, and here's the Express then, sticking with the weapons issue. NATO countries poised to send 50 fighter jets to Ukraine. Um, so this is uh, reporting that a club, as they describe it, of seven countries, that's the UK, France, Belgium, Germany, the Netherlands, Italy and Spain, um, called the European Air Group, uh, met at uh, High Wycombe Air Command last week uh, to make arrangements for this. Uh, and uh, well, there you go. We're going to be sending, we talked about this on the news well, last week, but it looks like it's going to happen. Well, it's going to be a joke, Mike, because of course the air defences out there, the Russian air defences are second to none, which is why the U Ukrainian Air Force does not exist anymore. And uh, 50 aircraft put into the battlefield are not going to last long. Yeah, indeed. So let's put uh, Di Whittingham on screen. He's a veteran uh, RAF, also served with the Ministry of Defence and with NATO. Uh, and he said, some may say deploying typhoons is a major escalation, but while it's not inevitable, it's really just a logical progression. Uh, what do we say about that? Well, he's another madman because um, uh, he doesn't know what he's, what, he's, um, what he's stirring up and where this thing is going for. Uh, they are living in their own reality, Mike. I'm having difficulty with this because 50 jets thrown into this war are going to be gone in a couple of weeks. Well, let's bring, so, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, let's bring um, Rob Bauer on, Admiral Rob Bauer, who's the chair of uh, the NATO Military Committee. Let's just have a quick listen. Welcome, Admiral Bauer. You said about this Ukrainian war that it was a war of the past, a war of the future in the present. What exactly do you mean by that? Uh, very often I hear from people that they say, that the military is always preparing for the last war and uh, that they actually should prepare for the future war. And then people think about high technology, cyber, information warfare, hybrid warfare. And we all 
thought that the Russians would play that type of warfare much harder. And um, in the end, we found out that they are using tactics and procedures from the First World War, 1914-1918. Huge right. artillery barrages, uh, indiscriminate uh, uh, destruction, firing on uh, civilian infrastructure, firing on military positions. And uh, without a lot of movement, but with a lot of destruction and killing. And uh, at the same time, uh, there is cyber, there is information uh, uh, operations, there is drones. So you actually see that uh, we are fighting, the Ukrainians are fighting the war of the past, the war of the future today at the same time. Now, sorry, Mike, were you confused by that? Because uh, I, I was pretty confused as to what was in that man's head. Well, what's in what what's in that man's head, Brian, is British defence doctrine because uh, this is the. If you remember, you showed the 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 uh, publication a couple of weeks ago on the on this program, the Future Soldier uh, document, yeah. which has come out of the integrated review and the integrated operating concept. That's exactly what he's expressing. So he's in a bit of uh, cognitive dissonance there because th this is this has been the way they've been thinking, not just in the UK, but in Europe as well. This future war, this future soldier concept. And the Russians are not playing and ball. And they're not playing ball. So yeah. this has put them in a bit of difficulty. But uh, let's have a little bit more because that was a 20 minute interview. And we've just obviously just shown one minute of it. But uh, this is this was the point. Uh, NATO is prepared for, for a direct confrontation with Russia. Rearmament is the alliance's top priority. So I'm a bit confused about how NATO, he's saying NATO is prepared, but they have to focus on rearmament because actually they're not prepared. Yeah. Right. So, so there you go. And then he went on to say the fact that your enemy has better weapons is not the problem for the enemy. It's your problem. Well, perhaps there's a bit of reality creeping in there, but uh, nonetheless, he seems a bit confused about things. Yeah, to uh, totally confused. But you know, we've shown the pictures of what's going on in the battlefield. The fact the Russians are moving slowly is nothing to do with the fact they're not capable. They're moving slowly because they kill more Ukrainians and save the lives of more Russians by doing that. And they're using weapon systems that basically NATO, the British and the Americans can only dream of. Let's remember those hypersonic missiles. NATO, the US, UK, the EU does not have an answer to them. And this is one of the reasons why we're not hearing a dicky bird about American aircraft carriers, because the Americans can't put aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean where they could, uh, in days gone by, have an influence with uh, uh, the air warfare or a no-fly zone. Those carriers are completely at the mercy of those Russian missiles. So this is why all of a sudden there's certain areas of the, the US rhetoric have just disappeared from the scene. We better end it there because, no. oh, oh, well, I couldn't resist bringing this one in. So let's, let's bring Admiral Rob Bauer back on screen. I, I found this one on his Twitter page. Good to speak with the officers from the hashtag Peace with Women Fellowship, a rich program that not only empowers the, pay, the participants, but also their respective armed forces. So he's uh, obviously getting a, a bit of a testosterone kick out of sitting at the table with all these uh, well, what are they? Because they can't be women, can they? Because NATO's policy is that women don't exist. So um, the other point that I was a little bit puzzled about is, of course, all the people dying in Ukraine at the moment are men. So we don't even have Ukrainian 
equality on the battlefield. Let's get those, whatever they are, because I'm not allowed to call them women, let's get them on the battlefield as well. Sorry to be a bit sarcastic about this, but I found this picture nearly worse than the Ukrainian cadets because he, he's just getting an ego trip out of his Twitter page, I think. Yes, okay, well, let's, uh, let's look at how the ramp war is being ramped up with China then. So here is uh, uh, CNBC News. Uh, Air Force General predicts war with China in 2025, tells officers to prep by firing a clip at a target and aim for the head. Uh, in, so this was a memo sent by General Mike Minhan, uh, head of the Air Mobility Command. He said, I hope I'm wrong, but my gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Uh, CNBC or NBC says uh, in the memo sent Friday and obtained by NBC News, uh, Minahan, head of Air Mobility Command, said, oh, that's a repeat. I do apologize for that. He said the memo uh, that because both uh, Taiwan and the United States will have presidential elections in 2024, the U.S. will be distracted and Chinese President Xi Jinping will have an opportunity to move on Taiwan. So that's going to happen. He says uh, he lays out his goals for preparing, including building a fortified, ready, integrated and agile joint force maneuver team ready to fight and win against the first inside the first island chain. Uh, and they go on to say that uh, that, in fact, the US military has confirmed in a statement on Friday that the memo is real. This is an, an authentic internal memo from General Minhan addressed to subordinate. Uh, command teams, his order builds on last year's foundational efforts by Air Mobility Com Command to ready the mobility air forces for future conflicts should deterrence fail. So that's uh, the kind of rhetoric that's going on within the US military at the moment. But what about some of the think tanks and the policy setters? Well, here's RAND. Uh, and they're talking about avoiding a long war, uh, US policy and the trajectory of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And here's the key paragraph. Beyond the potential for Russian gains and the economic consequences for Ukraine, Europe and the world, a long war would also have consequences for US foreign policy. Uh, the US ability to focus on its other global priorities, particularly competition with China, will remain constrained as long as the war is absorbing senior policymakers' time uh, and US military resources. So they've got to get this Ukrainian conflict uh, over as quickly as possible sort out the Russia situation so they can move on to China, uh, yeah. seems to be what Rand is saying. But I don't think that's going to be happening. And of course, if China now has the hypersonic missiles, then the American carriers that normally operate off the Chinese coast have got a big problem. Um, that brings us back onto the subject of uh, aging populations. And let's bring in Mark Anderson. Uh, Mark, you've picked up on this. You've also picked up on uh, the connections uh, with this subject in Japan. Uh, yes, uh, this complements what David was talking about earlier. Uh, great minds think alike, I guess. We both independently picked the Japanese topic here. Uh, in this Time Magazine piece, that's the uh, slide that's coming up, <clears throat> it says, aging populations can be good for the climate change fight. And the writer is Sierra Nugent, a London-based Time Magazine staff writer. And uh, going on, the narrative in this article says, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida says his country is on the brink of catastrophe. Japan is by some measures the oldest nation in the world uh, in, in the sense of the population with 29.1% of people over 65. Deaths far outpace births, and by 2050, the population is expected to shrink by a fifth. The workforce is contracting. 
The social security burden is growing. Our nation is on the cusp of whether it can maintain its societal functions, Kashida said on January 23rd, as he announced last ditch policy measures to increase the birth rate. It's now or never. We heard about that a little bit earlier today. Never, and this is the writer of time writing now, never must be best from a climate perspective, responding to Kashida saying it's now or never. Population issues can be hard to talk about in the environmental movement. A controversial subset of campaigners has framed population growth in Africa and South Asia as the greatest threat to efforts to stop global warming, despite people in those regions contributing a small fraction of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. I want to be clear that population control is not the solution to climate change, the Time writer claims, but then she goes on to say, but it doesn't make sense for developed countries to ignore the positive role that their shrinking populations could play in the climate fight. Get that, a sudden switch of gears here. The average person in Japan emits 54 times more carbon dioxide a year than the average person in South Sudan which is the country that grew the most population-wise in 2021. And I emphasize the next part. Even though emissions in developing regions will likely grow with living standards in the crucial next few decades, it is wealthy aging countries like Japan, the US, the UK, and Germany that are the biggest problem. And going on with another emphasized part, and it becomes clearer what they're getting at, very Malthusian here, Fewer people in those countries would mean less consumption, lower emissions, and less damage to the natural world. How dare mankind even inhabit the earth, right? Individuals have begun to contemplate the fact with one in four children, adults in the U.S., citing climate change as a reason not to reproduce in a 2020 survey. Experts say, however, it's governments that urgently, urgently need to factor the environment into their demographic decisions and, and factor aging into their climate plans. So uh, this is reminiscent of what, what I reported last week from The Lancet, where uh, humanity, and we'll get onto that in a second, where humanity is seen as an intruder in the world, as something that's really apart and separate from the natural world. And if there was only fewer of us, then these uh, climate change problems would be solved. So on the one hand, you see J Japan's leader saying, we need to increase the birth rate. We need to get the social contract in order. We need to balance the scales. But then the Malthusian mass media cartel comes along and says, oh, no, 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 no. You just need fewer people because that's better for the planet, for the natural world. And uh, just to recall what I had last week from The Lancet, we'll put that up briefly. Uh, I had covered one health action for health security and equity and various aspects of that. And a little bit more narrative from that that's a little clearer than what I put out last week. Recall from last week that according to The Lancet, and this listen to this very closely because this is uh, not exactly what I put out there last week. And it's, it's a little bit more compelling as to what The Lancet, uh, in terms of the, uh, the worldview of the, of the Lancet with regards to humanity. Modern attitudes toward human health take a purely anthropocentric view that the human being is the center of attention and concern. One Health places us in an interconnected and interdependent relationship with non-human animals and the environment. And then the next quote is most important of all. The consequences of this thinking 
entail a subtle but quite revolutionary shift of perspective. All life is equal and of equal concern. Hmm. So plant life, animal life, all life is of equal concern. Let that sink in a little bit. And so they, they go on to conclude this understanding is fundamental to addressing pressing health issues at the hell at the human animal environmental interface. So really humanity is being seen as a sacrificial lamb, ultimately at least, for climate change, despite whatever demographic and economic problems uh, Japan and other countries may be experiencing from having such a low birth rate. Uh, Brian or anyone else, do you want to quickly uh, comment before I move on? Uh, well, my immediate comment is that at least these people are becoming visible now. They don't, they don't love mankind. They don't love one another. It's almost as though we've got a different species forming the policy, whether it's coming out of the UN, UNESCO, or the World Economic Forum. But it's very clear to me that the attack is actually on, on mankind itself. That's what they're aiming at. They want us removed yeah. from the planet. Yeah, it's very ironic. We we have all these wars, the war in Ukraine and whatnot, but, but whatever that might ultimately result in, whatever exactly is happening there, the real war is demographic and informational uh, against the people of the nation states. And like you say, it's almost like there's an alien regime running things when you look at their philosophy. Now, moving on, we have a... NPR, National Public Radio, this is a branch of what you might call the U.S. version of the BBC. Uh, migration could prevent a looming population crisis, but there are catches. Now, this is very interesting. Moving on with the narrative, according to developmental, excuse me, according to developmental economist Lant Pritchard, falling birth rates could upend economies, you think? Last week, China reported population decline for the first time in more than 60 years, raising questions about its future economic growth. Other countries are heading toward a similar fate. Slowing birth rates in the developed world are resulting in aging populations and smaller workforces. But in parts of the developing world, the youth population is still growing, and some countries are struggling to create enough jobs for an expanding working age population. Uh, Princhett goes on to say, Pritchett, I'm saying that right. It's a win-win, according to Pritchett, this developmental economist. Immigration solves labor shortages in the developed world, like the U.S. supposedly having labor shortages, and emigration, people leaving their home countries, solves the job shortages in their developing world home countries. And um, going on to say, um, and this is a Tara Watson the, of the Brookings Institution, I am a proponent of moving toward a permanent visa space, says Tara Watson, director of the Brookings Institution Center on Children and Families. And according to the Gallup poll, almost 1 billion people around the world would migrate permanently if they could. It's the permanent immigrants who generate the long, long run population growth for us, Watson said. Moving back to Pritchett, to Pritchett, the current landscape of migration is comparable to the U.S. prohibition of alcohol. Well, we want to ban all alcoholic beverages, and it just wasn't enforceable. We wanted to do that. And so the path to more control of alcohol was less control of alcohol, uh, but instead legalizing the flows of it. And then she, uh, Pritchett goes on to say, I feel the path to better migration is through more migration. 
And so what's going on here is that rather than encouraging a higher birth rate, they want to redistribute people. And so it sheds kind of a new light on the U.S. southern border and illegal immigration uh, into the U.K. and any other, any other affected areas of the world. If you look behind the curtain, it seems that the thinking is that uh, we'll, we'll continue the abortion industry as much as we can. We'll, uh, you know, we'll use climate change as an excuse to keep populations low and to keep uh, economies in distress such as that of Japan. And then if we do need more people here and there, well, we'll just redistribute the people through immigration, legal or illegal. Uh, that seems to be the trend. And it does, as I say, it does shed more light on why we have this uncontrolled uh, worldwide uh, immigration, m much of it illegal. And then uh, there's an ABC item here uh, moving on. More than 150,000 births could occur in the U.S. every year following the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And this was reported only a couple of days after Roe v. Wade was overturned. So lo and behold, ABC stumbled upon the fact that you could increase the birth rate by limiting abortion. And keeping in mind that the U.S. alone has aborted 50 million babies in the last 50 years under Roe v. Wade goes a long way to explain why the social contract is way out of balance and is disintegrating. And indeed, uh, moving on here, uh, kind of summarizing, a complete recriminalization of abortion nationwide, this is according to a 1999 report, a complete recriminalization of abortion nationwide could result in 440,000 additional births per year. And that's according to Roe v. Wade and American Fertility, 1999, from the National Library of Medicine, which is part of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. And then uh, winding this up, ABC News, June 27, 2022, Roe v. Wade was overturned three days before that. Uh, ABC News cited estimates a little bit lower of 150,000 to 159,000 additional live births each year if Roe v. Wade was overturned, which it was. Birth rates in the country have been declining since the Great Recession of 2008 and 09, and were only worsened by the COVID pandemic. Uh, I, I had heard opposite. I thought I heard there was a slight uptick in the birth rate after uh, after the pandemic lockdown. And then this last part, researchers found that limiting access to abortion in several states will boost, boost birth rates, excuse me, beginning in the second half of this year. So... Rather than redistributing people, the establishment is, you might say, kind of stubbornly admitting that um, the abortion industry has taken a huge toll and that by turning that around, we can bring the birth rate back up, uh, improve the economic uh, um, metrics, you might say, and, and then we wouldn't have to have such unlimited migration and immigration redistributing people around the world. So there's a lot of dynamics at work here. And if you look at enough of it, you begin to see a very clear picture. And then, and then uh, sort of a, a weird twist to this is the next slide coming up here. Um, however, the media will, will celebrate transgender men, the fact that they can get pregnant. And here's what they wish more people understood. Of course, this is women who want to be men who have female parts. And we can celebrate their their ability to give birth, we're told. But when they talk about the birth rate going up uh, post-Roe, there's a lot of chilling media reports right now that there'll be a lot of 
premature births, that there's going to be all sorts of problems with women giving birth. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, is the abortion industry is a huge reason why there's been such a demographic nosedive across much of the world and especially in the United States. So that altogether paints the Malthusian media as really um, uh, trying to, in, in many ways, trying to distort reality. But the truth always comes out, nevertheless, as we analyze it here in UK Column. Okay, thanks, Mark. Thanks for that. Now, sticking with the transgender issue, David, let's move on to what's been going on in Scotland, because uh, the question is, where do you put people in prison and a whole other range of questions uh, from Scotland at the moment? Well, yes, the truth is coming out in ways that Nicola didn't intend. So let's go back a week, 23rd, here we see Peter Tatchell tweeting, the idea that a would-be would male rapist, he means convicted rapist, is going to dress as a woman for three months to get a gender recognition certificate is laughable. That's why Rape Crisis Scotland, Women's Aid Scotland and Zero Tolerance Scotland support the gender reform bill and they reject fiction and scaremongering. So he says it's nothing to do with the fact that these three charities are uh, funded by the Scottish Government. That's not the reason they're backing Scottish Government legislation. No, it's because it's a fiction and scaremongering that um, any... Uh, any rapist would uh, want to dress the woman and spend his uh, time incarcerated in a woman's prison. And he quotes uh, an article in the Pink News, which we have here. Uh, it's uh, uh, lauding Nicola Sturgeon. She shuts down an anti-trans myth. It's a myth, remember, it's a myth, that gender law reform will lead to attacks on women. So having biological men in women's changing rooms, women's toilets, women's prisons, this, this cannot lead to attacks on women, according to Nicola Sturgeon. This is a myth. Um, so they say, quote, uh, you have some groups that, error in the original, work with women that are subject to violence by predatory men. Rape Crisis Scotland, Women's Aid, and Zero Tolerance Scotland. These are groups that work with vulnerable women every single day, says Nicola. These organisations support this legislation. So it's important to be clear, right? So Nicola's being clear. Uh, actually, most of the key women's organisations in Scotland do support this legislation. So when she says clear, she means she's clear that I fought the charities, they now support me. Let's be clear on that. Um, so she's quoting the charities as justification for her policy not being a threat against women. Because if, if it was a threat against women, these charities would sound the alarm, right? Despite the fact that all of the money comes from me, they would sound the alarm against my policy according to Nicola. That's how naive she thinks we all are. So how is that going? Well, we've got the case of Adam Graham, or as he's now known, Isla Bryson. Um, this is a shambles, uh, omni-shambles, I think is the correct phrase, says a former prison chief. Uh, sending a transgender rapist to a women's prison was an unnecessary shambles, said the former governor of the prison. Rona Hotchkiss, who, who ran Condon Vale until 2017, said she would have refused to have Isla Bryson at the prison. She said, actually said she would have resigned rather than have that. Uh, Bryson, who was remanded to the jail in Stirling after being convicted, convicted of raping two women before she, uh, the BBC are quite right on with the pronouns, other, other publications are really struggling, before she changed gender. Surely he changed gender because, uh, never mind, uh, Bryson began, began transitioning uh, from a man to a woman while he was awaiting trial. She was moved to HMP Edinburgh's men's prison on Thursday into the, um, 
into the uh, child sex offenders wing, actually. So, it's not going all that well. So, if we go to Wing Scotland to comment on nationalism from with a lot of inside sources, uh, inside the, the, the pro-independence movement. Uh, and they are commenting, do you think she, Nicola, looks tired? Because Nicola Sturgeon's incredible argument hubris over the gender recognition reform bill has finally achieved what feminists have been trying to do for years, push the toxic issue of gender right in front of the media and into the faces of the public. And having just created a massive train wreck over the Adam Graham Isla Bryson affair, it's nothing short of jaw-dropping that the SNP response is to walk right into a burning skip fire. Let's have a look at the burning skip fire. Uh, the burning skip fire concer can, uh, concerns Andrew Burns, now known as Tiffany Scott. No relation. Um, the Scottish government's U-turn uh, has, has decided not to move Tiffany uh, to the same women's prison. The Scottish government has been forced to U-turn on trans prisoners and has blocked the trans transfer of inmate Tiffany Scott to a female prison. I hear you laughing in the background, Mike. It gets weirder and funnier. Uh, Scott, or Burns, because I don't believe you can change your clan, um, who is originally from Kinglassie and Fife, was convicted of stalking a 13-year-old girl from prison while living as a man known as Andrew Burns. I'd have to say to the courier, he wasn't living as a man. He is a man, but still. Uh, and he went on to assault prison staff. He was due to be transferred from Lowell Moss Prison near Glasgow, uh, where he's been held in segregation to a female-only prison. Justice Secretary Keith Brown has now announced that no transgender person with a history of violence will be moved from a male to a female prison. This is just a sticking plaster over the wound. Um, and uh, Scottish Government confirmed this will in in include Scott. Now, just to illustrate, I mean, they were about to move him. This guy, this is how unsafe he is. He's unmanageable and a risk to public safety. He's serving an indefinite sentence. He's subject to an order for lifelong restriction. He will only be released when there's no longer considered an unmanageable risk to public safety. He's a, a, he's, and he's had previous multiple attempts to um, transfer to a women's prison. So Mr. Brown, Keith Brown, uh, Justice Secretary said, quote, I understand the issue uh, that the issue of trans women being convicted of violent sexual offences is, highly, is a highly emotive subject and that the public concern is understandable. So thank you, Mr. Mr. Brown, for saying that our concern is understandable. I hope the measures I am highlighting will offer reassurance in the ongoing ability of the prison service, note the removal of all responsibility from him to the prison service, nice move there, to manage trans in individuals, code, it's nothing to do with Mr. Brown, and ensure the safety of all prisoners. He added, predatory men are the risk to women, he said the government cannot allow any suggestion that trans women are inherently a threat to women uh, to take root. So it's, it's about managing the dialogue. It's about managing the, the narrative. He continues, quote, beyond the steps set out today, it is vital that the decisions about the location and management of prisons continue to be based on a thorough risk assessment. More about that concept in extra time. Drawing on the expertise and input of relevant professionals, applying lessons learned uh, and from the reviews referred to. So if there's women prisoners raped, then lessons will be learned. I'm sure that will be a big comfort to them. Um, Ash, there is some pushback. We've got Ash Reagan. 
uh, Scottish National Party MSP, Tiffany Scott, formerly Andrew Burns, one of the most dangerous prisoners in Scotland, has gained approval to be moved to a women's prison estate. Scott has attacked female prison officers and stalked a child from prison. No men should be placed in a women's prison. That seems a reasonable position. So how does Nicola Sturgeon answer the criticism? Well, she goes on um, some sort of TV channel and she says... Um, all our critics are misogynist, transphobic, and racist. Now, I would have to point out, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, that hasn't worked since 2016, right? Everyone said to the British people, you can't vote for Brexit because it means you're racist. And the British people, 17 million of those beautiful people said, no, we're not, we're not falling for that. So she's a bit behind the times. She said, I think it will be interesting to see how many of the so-called defenders of, of women's rights in the context of trans debate suddenly don't think that all women's rights are actually important. And there'll be some people who... Uh, who I think have decided to use women's rights as a sort of cloak of acceptability to cover up what is transphobia. So they're phobic. They have an irrational fear. Now, again, that's not everyone who opposes the bill. I want to be clear about that. But there are people who have opposed this bill that cloak themselves in women's rights to make it acceptable. But just as they're transphobic, you also find they're deeply misogynistic, often homophobic, and possibly some of them racist as well. So everyone that doesn't agree with Nicola is a racist. That's her defence. I'm sorry, that's not going to work. Meanwhile, in Glasgow, um, as Diamond Millen reports here, even the people who are um, graffitiing the bridge piers know more than Nicola does. Uh, this graffiti reads, putting men in women's prison, prisons isn't kind, it's evil. And that rather covers it. So we finish off with, um, uh, go back to uh, Wings, um, a, a report that they put in, which comes from inside the SNP uh, machine in Butte House. He refers to that as Stasi HQ. Uh, well, so do we, actually. Uh, so, reports from Stasi HQ say that Sturgeon isn't a complete mess over this. She's been extremely short-tempered with staff. In cabinet meetings, she's determined to push this through, even though Shona Robertson, who's now totally drained, is reluctant to take the Section 35 order to court. <laughs> no wonder. Uh, this is going to, there's going to be a reshuffle in May. Robertson is likely to stand down and replace with Todd Gil Ruth. Humza has been moved out of health when a swap with Angus Robertson. It's finished Humza's ambitions and Air, Air Miles Angus will have to do some work for a change to keep his own intact. Sturgeon is obsessed with Ash Reagan, whose tweet we just saw. And the SPADs, uh, special advisors and comms teams will be doubling down, briefing against her in the next few weeks. She's now been viewed as a serious challenger with huge support from grassroots members now that uh, most have shifted from from Kate Forbes due to her recent inaction on the Gender, Rec uh, reform, um, gender Recognition Reform Act. Forbes is meant to be on maternity leave, but she's been seen in manoeuvres lately with a few reports of her still being involved in decisions and briefings. Uh, she could have issued a statement or resigned, uh, but she made a pact with Sturgeon she would not intervene as long as the GRR had gone through. Uh, however, she has delayed her return due to the continuing running so that the GRR represents and it's, likely, and it's unlikely she will return until the worst is over. There's a complete bunker mentality at Butte House and those who have hitched their own careers to Sturgeon are in a panic. CVs are being updated, allegiances are shifting and the mood is said to be dire beyond belief. A dire beyond belief um, is the political... Um, uh, epithet that most suits Nicola Sturgeon and everything she's done. Okay, thanks for that, David. Fantastic. And uh, let's move on then just very quickly to Kitty Joe. Uh, and uh, well, an update on uh, the drag queen story, or I believe. 
Yes, we get to the drag queen story hour at the end, but I'm just continuing on with the madness, the transgender madness after David. Um, so just this month, I saw a video of a young lady called Rebecca Phillips, who's just 17, and she is speaking to the Santee City Council about her terrifying experience at the YMCA. Uh, Rebecca works at Santee, and she um, uses the YMCA to swim and, and uses the gym after work. And in the video, when she's talking um, she about her experience, she gets incredibly upset when she mentions about how her five-year-old sister uses the YMCA um, for classes and for swimming. Um, Rebecca was showering in the women's changing rooms and as she came out of the shower she saw a man naked in the women's changing room standing there so terrified she went back into the shower waited till he'd gone and then after composing herself went to speak to the managers and she pointed out that hundreds of children use the YMCA especially in the summer months when they have childcare camps and she asked what their policy was on transgender men using women's facilities and they said that the man was allowed to shower wherever he pleased as long as you are not a red flag on Megan's Law, the Californian Sex Offender Registry, a grown man can shower alongside a teenage girl with no problem, apparently. Uh, so Rebecca said she was made to feel like she was the one that had done something wrong and that she was being an inconvenience to them. Um, her father, however, did call the sheriff and he said to him, do not let her shower there or use the facilities ever again. Um, now, the person we are talking about is Chrissy Wood. This is the, uh, the man who was in the changing rooms. And when he spoke at the meeting, he was allowed one minute more and he was flanked with supporters waving transgender flags. He claimed he was a mum and a grandmum and was a no threat to anyone. But if you dive deeper into this man's uh, social media, it says different if you ask me. He has multiple photos of little girls wearing adult clothing and there's weird captions where he compares himself to the children. Another post was about a quiz Wood, Wood had taken, which was, how perverted are you? And he scored 637% on that one. So perfectly safe to be in women's changing rooms, if you ask me. Um, he made a statement in the Times of San Diego and denounced Rebecca as a little witch who has spread lies from the very beginning. Um, the problem these fitness centres face is the law, the law that is supposed to protect us. Well, a Navy veteran won a lawsuit in 2021 against a fitness centre called Crunch Fitness, who refused to give him access to women's changing rooms. And as David mentioned over here, we have in Scotland, they have finally changed their policy, thank God, on sending transgender inmates to all female prisons. But it's unbelievable to think that that was even allowed to happen in the first place. Um, and yes, let's move on to Seb Samuel. I'm sure you, you all remember him, a.k.a. Ada HD. Um, and he's from Drag Queen Story Hour. Uh, there he is, if you've got the photo there, with his bits on display, reading stories to little children. Um, his latest mission has been to raise money for a fellow drag queen's funeral. Darren Moore was found dead on the 22nd of January in Cardiff, and Samuel's response on Facebook was, taken unjustly, I'd like to help give my friend the send-off he deserves with a link to his GoFundMe page to pay for his funeral. This all sounds perfectly normal and fine until you find out that Darren Moore was actually a convicted child sex offender. He was convicted of four counts of rape on a boy under the age of 14 and spent three years in a young offenders institution. He was banned from having any contact with children, but in 2011, he was caught breaching this lifetime order whilst working as a gymnast and dance tutor. In 2018, he performed at Pride Without Prejudice and audience members walked out after he made lighthearted comments about Jimmy Savile. 
So he wasn't an innocent transgender man. He was a rapist and Sab Samuel's friend. So, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who your friends are or who you support or what you post, apparently, because even the Tate is welcoming the Drag Queen Story Hour next month. The Tate proudly proclaims on its website that it aims to become a truly inclusive organisation with a workforce and audience as diverse as the community it serves. So we must keep speaking out and up and supporting those in the spotlight that are putting their careers and their lives on the line by speaking out about it. There are a great number of us in this country that don't agree with this crazy transgender ideology and believe that children should be protected from the grooming that is going on under the guise of equality. Okay, thank you very much for that. Now, David, we've just got a couple of uh, final slides to finish. Final slides in order of Nicola Sturgeon's policies in Scotland and they're only paused. They're not exactly over. You don't get anything ever over in Scotland. It keeps going. Uh, so first way from Matt, cartoon, uh, Little Red. Uh, Riding Hood is looking at the wolf uh, who's dressed in grandmother's clothes and says, so you ate grandma and now you want to be sent to a women's prison. Well, that was quite good. And even better, we have the fox in the hen house and all the hens are alarmed, but he's saying, relax, ladies. I've been risk assessed. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, just to end here, I've got a very poignant little um, uh, uh, film clip, which I, I will, I will uh, speak um, because uh, the gentleman is uh, speaking Ukrainian, but he's making a statement of apology to the people of Donbass. Um, so let's just have a look at this and I'll do, do my best. He starts off by saying, Hello, I want to record this statement to the residents of Donbass. Um, he's, he's been, uh, that have been going through what he calls bacchanalia that is taking place today since the far away 2014. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm not some celebrity, TV anchor, singer, dancer, showman. I'm an ordinary person from Zaporozhye. I'm asking you to forgive me for not understanding you and for being able to understand you only now. Forgive me. And to all those who still haven't understood these people and who uh, don't understand these people, the ranks like those in Zaporozhye and Kyrgyzstan regions, to all those living in the central region, I'm not judging you. I don't even... Sorry, I missed that one because to feel this rotten blood, the whirlpool of this rotten blood, I wouldn't wish it to the enemy. Simply keep quiet. Thank you for your attention. But I'm sorry, I missed a little bit there, but it was a very poignant apology of one man, one section of Ukrainian society apologizing to another section of society. And let's remember that these people would not be at each other's throats had it not been for the fermenting of the war by the US and the UK, NATO and the EU. We'll leave it there. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, on the uh, members live stream if you want to watch some extra. Yeah, join us then. And thank you to everybody who's joined us for the news today. We'll be back shortly. Bye bye. bye, -bye.